0: 皆
1: to the Bloody Pit. I am Rod Barnett and returning for a very special episode of Half Hour Joy is Mark Clark, author Mark Clark. Uh, are, oh, you have been uh, toiling away in the salt mines of writing, I'm sure. Uh, what uh, what uh, have you been working on, sir?
2: Uh, well, I am still attempting to finish the book I was talking about the last time I was on with you which was the, the book about uh, horror movies from the 1940s uh, but the pro- uh, just 2020 wound up being kind of a a, a, a wash, just kind of a lost year. <laughs> I, I I didn't get barely any writing time the entire year, so I'm so I'm just i have just thrown it out, and I intend to finish it uh, hopefully in the next few months.
1: Well, I mean, you're covering an entire decade, so don't you know? Don't knock yourself, uh, don't <laughs> don't knock yourself for for too much too much. Plus, to be blunt, uh, if memory serves, 2020 was a rough year for just about everybody. So,
2: yeah, uh, yes, that is a fact. Yeah, the, what's what's driving me nuts is there's actually not that much done uh, left to, to to finish with it. There's uh, it's it's almost com- it's almost complete. I've got a relatively small number of films to do, and then some then the front matter and. Uh, and uh, that's it. So there's it shouldn't really take this long, but one has to actually have time to sit down and you know, in front of a computer just concentrate. yeah, yep.
1: Well, uh, just just uh, I don't know if you have this number at your fingertips, but uh, maybe as a round figure. how many uh, how many movies are you covering in the book?
2: I, I, it's, it's almost 300.
1: Wow. Okay, well, that, that I personally, of course, as a as a fan of your previous books, uh, the the '60s Shockers book uh, is is a, is a is a is a classic in my opinion, and uh, I do I do love your uh, your other works as well. I just I'm looking forward to seeing this.
2: It's gonna be it's gonna be good. I think I I think it's going. If you like this the '60s book, this is gonna be up your alley. I mean, it's obviously it's it's a different decade and everything, but it's just as fascinating and. Uh, there are a lot of overlooked uh aspects uh of that decade which you know we, we that'd be another topic for us to talk about sometime maybe after the book is actually either out or you know at least complete <laughs> we could, you
0: know, i could talk about that
1: <laughs> well i think it'd be great once uh once the book is out to have you on and just talk about some of the some of the highlights of the book i think that'd be amazing because i i'm of course fascinated by uh the horror films of the nineteen forties. I'm fascinated by the horror films of most decades. Let's be blunt, but the uh, the the joys of the nineteen uh, forties are really st- they're odd in a lot of different ways, and the uh, it, it's it's very much a decade of uh, transition and change uh, forced onto the film industry by of course outside forces and uh i think that it 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 twists and turns what get what got put out in that decade in odd directions and it's also uh, a decade where so many independent productions had the chance to kind of break through in an odd way uh but you know that's as you say a topic for another time the um
2: let me sneak in the fact that i am that my good friend brian sin did write about half of this book but he, he's finished his work like you know a year ago and is now writing two more books so you know he's kind of inseparable that way
1: <laughs> yeah yeah the, the brian i i love brian and then sometimes it's clear that most people occasionally would just like to strangle him it's kind of a mark maddox <laughs> kind of thing
2: well i don't know how can you be
1: point. how can you be so damn productive you know <laughs> exactly yeah, yeah, I know. I mean, and all that time, I think I've, I've, I, as far as writing is is concerned, I produced like a chapter of a book, a single chapter, and it's yeah. like you know, uh, you know, on a subject that I should be able to relate to people in my sleep, you know, to a large degree, and so it's just you know, I, I am I'm impressed by people who can crank out a book. Well, very much in the same vein of the strangeness of the nineteen forties horror films, there's an odd tone to what we're going to talk to about to talk about today that. uh I find similarly soothing in a strange fashion. Uh, today, people were talking about uh, uh, an ultra, uh, well, an ultra interesting show. Let's put it that way. Ultra Q from 1966, although apparently the very last episode to be broadcast originally was broadcast in 1967. Ultra Q from Japan. Ultra uh, An incredible show that I have to admit, uh, unlike a lot of other people, I was not able to ever see this show until the advent of video. This was not something that was shown on television when I was growing up, or where I was growing up, I should say. Just off the top, when did you first see Ultra Q?
2: Actually, like you, this is not a show I was able to see until very recently. Um, You know, I grew up with Ultraman, of Mm -hmm. course, um, and I had kind of heard of Ultra Q, but it was never something i was able to see very easily and um i and i wasn't honestly terribly <laughs> curious about it uh, in a weird way because hmm. um i assumed that uh erroneously as it turns out that ultra q was just sort of like ultraman without ultraman in it and that didn't sound terribly interesting to me plus it was in black and white and had, which is not necessarily a detriment but just made it seem a little creakier and it, you know, without having seen it. And, um, so yeah. I, I knew it was out there, but I had not seen it. And then, um, it, it came out on, on Blu-ray from Mill Creek and I, I bought it and it immediately blew my socks off. And I know we when when we did our, the last time we, we did a, one of these together, it was one of the things I suggested that we, we maybe talk about on a future one because I had at that point just, finished watching it and i thought you would love it i mean after the discussion we had about things like the living skeleton and genocide and some of the crazy movies in the uh when horror came to shoshiku set yeah um i thought this is going to be totally up rodney's alley and i was just knocked out by it it was not at all what i expected and it was way better than what i
1: expected well, I I found myself pretty impressed with it. I actually had picked up the previous uh, DVD set that was put out by Shop Factory. I understand the the Blu-ray set is a bit of an improvement. Uh, I think one of the ways it may have been an improvement is uh, it may they may have cleaned up the subtitles a little bit because there's a there's the occasional bit of sloppiness in the in the subtitles. Not nearly as bad as what I used to suffer through watching uh, the uh, English as a second language subtitles of Hong Kong films back in the 90s, Right. where uh, where honestly, you were just sometimes trying to dope out who in the world thought that some of these words belonged next to each other. <laughs> but uh, there's the occasional dropped article here and there uh, and, or a skipped word that is pretty evident, and it just seems obvious. but the uh, the the DVD set I have uh, has the entire series. I will probably now that I've gone through, now that I've gone through this series, I have to admit there's a there's a joy to it. I mean, we're talking about twenty eight total episodes. And um, it, although it's honestly described probably accurately as a, as a tokusatsu science fiction slash kaiju series, the, the, the episodes that I find most fascinating across the board are the ones that do not involve a kaiju. Um, maybe it's because I'm an adult when I'm coming to this show versus, you know, if I caught this when I was a kid, it would have been you know, the giant monsters that it would, that would have been the most fascinating aspect of this to me.
2: Yeah, honestly, I I had the same reaction, and, and I didn't fully realize that until you know as we were I was as we were preparing for this, um, I went through and uh, as I said I had I had watched the whole thing and and, and been just sort of uh, you know bowled over by it uh, some months ago, and then uh, and then preparing for this, I decided to go back and revisit some of the episodes that had impressed me the most. So I rewatched about six episodes and just kind of uh, watched parts of a few others and took some notes and things. And uh, I realized that um, all of my favorite episodes, like, uh, or, or or none of my favorite episodes actually are, have are big kaiju episodes. They're all other kinds of episodes, which, uh, and I didn't even realize that the series was even going to have those kind of episodes when I started watching it. So, uh, well,
1: if you start if you start watching it from the beginning, if you start watching it in the order, either it was broadcast or that are you know just in production order, even you're, you're what you're watching starts out very much as if it's going to be a kind of monster of the week, you know, giant Kaiju of the week kind of thing. And for a a lot of episodes, that's what it is.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, it it starts off, I mean, you know, the first episode, at least in, on, in the my set, which I think, I think my set is in the, the the Mill Creek set is, I believe in broadcast order. And by the way, the milk, this, the Blu-ray set is, is worth, well, I haven't seen the DVD set, but the, the Blu-ray set, it looks beautiful. The subtitles are, you know, very smooth and everything. And I, I, can't imagine you wouldn't find it worth the twenty some odd dollars to upgrade to the uh, to the Blu-ray on this, but uh, but it in, in the Mill Creek set. You, the the first episode is defeat Gomez, the one where yeah uh, they they find the giant monster while they're working on a on a like railway tunnel project, and that's pretty much what I expected the series to be. You know you've got the 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 two, you know the three plucky heroes, the the girl reporter and the and the and her two aviator friends who uh, are get mixed up in investigating this giant monster weirdness. And it's pretty pretty much exactly what I thought I was going to be getting here. But then within a couple or three episodes, it starts to go in a different direction. And um, about episode six, you get this this episode, Grow Up Little Turtle, where you have a little boy who loves this turtle who gets mixed up with... uh, with uh, gangsters, and then I mean, it just goes off in <laughs> super bizarre. I mean, the thing goes off the rails completely, and and never really gets back on the rails for the the remaining you know twenty two episodes after oh, it's, that.
1: It's nuts. Is it? Uh, you're talking about the one where the little little boy has a preoccupation with his pet turtle. Yes. Okay. Yeah. 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 Now, see, that's the first episode. If I, in the in the order I was watching, that was the first episode where it veered off into. Uh, WTF land, where you're just going, oh, okay, I thought I had a handle on what this thing was going to be. And honestly, up to that point, I think think that episode is like episode six. No matter how you're watching it, I think that's like the sixth episode. And it just feels as if um, maybe there were some restrictions placed on the production and they were trying to shake them off or they just decided, you know, if we throw in the occasional bizarre one, nobody will care. Because what this thing does is it's... Now, I, my timeline may be a little off here, and my, and my thoughts on the attitudes of the people involved in this may be off as well, but it feels a whole lot like they're kind of poking fun or kind of taking the piss out of the whole idea of Gamera to a degree. Uh, and like I said, it could be completely wrong, because I do know how common turtle pets were amongst children in japan so it's not as if uh the you know that you couldn't have come up independently with the idea of a of a child obsessed with his pet and the pet just happens to be a turtle but it does you know no matter how you look at it from our perspective it does seem as if those two those two uh, you know gamera the the first film at least and this episode of ultra Q do seem to kind of be bouncing off each other in strange ways i mean granted there is no you know princess involved in the Gamera movie but the uh, the side of the giant turtle you know and they're being gangsters I mean it just feels like an amalgam of some of the storylines from from some of the Gamera movies and it's just okay but this is much weirder I mean let's yeah it, but,
2: yeah it, it it definitely goes into these I mean and several of the episodes go to these kind of bizarre uh, kind of dark fantasy sort of places. I mean, it it starts off and you think it's going to be like little miniature kaiju movies. And then some episodes play more like Outer Limits episodes and other ones play more like Twilight Zone episodes. And Mm -hmm. some of them just play like I don't know what. I mean, just really bizarre uh, uh, little vignettes. (laughs) (laughs) And that episode starts off in a fairly normal way and then takes this left turn into it's like about about two-thirds of the way through that episode. I wasn't even sure what is supposed to be going on here you know it was like what the actual hell is happening you know
1: <laughs> well there's that i mean and part of the joy of these in in both directions part of the joy is that they're only 25 minutes long yes so they have got to they, they've got to get to the story they've got to uh, establish things you know uh, develop any mood or atmosphere that they feel that they need and and, uh, you know, and bring on the action and, and whatever, you know, whatever plot complications they've decided upon, they've got to do it quickly. You don't have time to play around. There's no real room for extraneous characters. And uh, although there is some wonderful detail in a lot of episodes, uh, there's a lot of times when it just feels like, you know, we don't have time to play. Let's get to the meat of things. And right. the, uh, the real joys of those, I mean, I, don't get me wrong. There's not been a single episode of this show that I did not enjoy But the variety of what they seem to be going for, episode to episode, varies. It varies so much that I'm suitably impressed and also just kind of bowled over a lot of the time. I mean, okay, let's. One of my favorite episodes, quite 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 honestly, is one of the monster episodes. I think Baron Spider is brilliant. I think Baron Spider is absolutely well. First of all, it's terrifying. Uh, even in concentrated 25 minute form, it feels like an incredibly well fleshed out uh, gothic horror madness. I mean it's just it's incredible. I mean the uh, the, the sheer beauty of it, the uh, the idea, the concept, the you know, the isolated you know crumbling gothic mansion, all of this, it, it feels like something that could have so incredibly easier been placed into the hands of of some Italians. Uh, in the same period of time, and turned into an incredibly scary gothic monster movie.
2: Absolutely, yeah, that's one of my favorite episodes, too, and and I had the same reaction. It's like, I'm watching this science fiction series, and all of a sudden, I get this gothic horror story, which is, and it's, a, and, 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 it, and for any, if you haven't seen this episode out there, it's, we have this, it, it's a very, actually, even older than the Italians, this goes all the way back to me, to like the 30s, and the universals and stuff, because you have this this sort of, benighted group of travelers on the way home from a party who are or get stranded out in the middle of nowhere and they they go into this old broken down uh like a house but uh, apparently the previous the previous uh, resident was this eccentric you know guy who collected spiders from all over the world and the place is infested with these um, Giant spiders, and it's uh, well,
1: and I love it to, to keep the typical to keep the typical Japanese uh, backstory both concise and tragic. It turns out that uh, the Baron's only daughter was accidentally killed by one of his poisonous spiders.
2: Yeah, and then she like supposedly comes back to life as a sort of ghost spider or something. It's it's very very creepy. Yeah, very well shot. Um, it's it's a really excellent episode. It's one of the ones if I mean. Uh, you know, like I said, I've got about a I rewatched about a half dozen episodes, including including the the four or five that are my very favorites, and and Baron Spider was was near the top of that list. I mean, I just really love that episode, and it's one of the ones. It's it's, not, it's,
1: impre- it's impressive.
2: Yeah, it's not necessarily. It's like maybe one I would show people and say this is a typical episode, but there really isn't a typical episode of this series. So you know, it's certainly yeah. one you could if you want to watch one just to kind of see what it can be thats this is one of the ones that would be on the list for just check this one out
1: well one of the joys of this show is that uh, much like you know TV series up until you know the late 1990s uh, this is a show that can be watched in just any kind of random order that you want so if you were to pre- present someone with okay out of the 28 watch these six and you'll get a flavor of all the various things that this show can do or tried to do yep uh, it, w- it wouldn't matter w- what what order they watch them in, so that they, they could just dip in and out, you know, from disc to disc and watch different w- watch different ones and, and get an idea of what in the hell is going on. It's fun, and th- there's no um, as much as I kind of wondered if there was going to be from the first couple of episodes. There's not really a, a kind of continuing arcing story or a, or a, a, a growth of uh, relationships between the the main the main reoccurring characters. Um, which you know, I, I don't see as a detriment. I just see it. That's that's the way these that's the way these things were done at the time. But it does make it so much more fun because you can you know throw all the episode titles up in the air, pick one at random, and watch it, and not worry about what you watch next, too.
2: Yeah, yeah. There's there's not there's no real continuity. I mean, I mean between no. uh, like character development or that sort of thing. In fact, that the the our our sort of three or four, I guess, main characters you've got. Jerico who is this who's the female you know reporter who's constantly getting into different mix-ups and you've got John who and and Ippe who are pilots and it's it's odd to me that that's the combination they give us or a, a reporter and two pilots but somehow they keep getting into adventures together and then they Well
1: friends. they do make it work they do make it work a lot of times because I had the same thought but so often this this female reporter is having to go someplace. Yes, which is which is great because it adds to the uh, it adds to the range of where they're shooting this stuff, and it also. Uh, as far as constructing the stories, it, it allows for uh, it allows for them to go, OK, well, this is happening, you know, away way, you know, way over here. This is happening out on this island. This is happening at this, you know, military base or wherever this, uh, you know, particular mountain digging is going on. And so that's cool because it, it, it does seem to and, and if they if it had been made, if this kind of show had been written decades later, these uh, th- th- this necess- this 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 necessary coming together of these characters would have you know s- slowly formed a, a stronger stronger bond over time and they really and they really don't play with that simply because this was something made in the 1960s yeah they
2: just they' they're they just appear to be pretty tight throughout the whole thing I mean yeah. it doesn't really begin anywhere or go anywhere but, but what I was gonna what I was gonna say about these characters was I mean they are they are good characters but uh, they're they're central to some of the episodes and they're more like supporting characters in other episodes and in some episodes they don't appear at all. And there's a I know. and there's a fourth character, the Professor Ichi character, Ichi
1: comes to- up randomly.
2: Yeah, he, and he shows up in some episodes and not another episodes. So it, yeah, it's like it is kind of unusual even in that respect that it's it's there's not a lot of uh, yeah, it's sort of like what have we got in terms of story and can we you know, can we fit these characters into it or not, or maybe they had different writers, some of whom didn't know the characters and just wrote whatever they wanted to write. Or I I don't know enough about the production of the, of the series to speak to that, but it has this interesting effect of, um, giving us characters that are, that provide us with a, with a, a point of view, but aren't necessarily, but it's not necessarily their story all the time.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, something else that I find kind of amazing is, okay, we just talked about how much we both love uh, the 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 Baron Spider episode. Um, the very next episode, the very next one, uh, was called "The Underground Super Express Goes West," right? And it is without a doubt. I mean, I've seen it described as a tongue-in-cheek episode, and I, I'll I'll ride with that description of it. That's fine, but to be blunt, it's completely insane. I mean, it, it, and, and and I can't figure out, I can't figure out the, I mean, I've now watched the episode and kind of thought about it and lived with it for a few days, really kind of letting it kind of, you know, kind of trying to think about it. And it's like, I still can't dope out exactly what in the hell anybody was thinking. I, this, it, it's so bizarre, oh, we should describe, okay, um, two of our main characters are passengers on the, uh, the first voyage of uh, a, a kind of futuristic bullet train that... Leaves Tokyo Station, and can get to uh, its destination in just a ridiculously short amount of time. It's an incredibly fast train, and this is o- it's obvious as the sh- as the episode goes on that this is being this is considered like a, a major new uh, technological marvel that uh, the Japanese have have created. Because you'll see uh, people, uh, especially kids, standing uh, near the uh, tracks. Waiting for it to zip by as you know so quickly that it's literally seconds before it's out of sight again. Just to just to cheer it on, and the uh, the thing is, um, there's this bizarre, <laughs> this bizarre life life form, which seems to primarily exist in a in a state of being like a jelly, <laughs> it becomes active when uh, exposed to a photographer's flashbulb of all things. <laughs> And it, it's it's stow, it stows away in the this bullet train's engine engine room. Uh, it starts to uh, it kind of evolve into a gorilla-like thing. So now we have this bizarre episode about a bullet a bullet train a futuristic bullet train that now has a long-limbed, incredibly ugly, hairy gorilla-like creature roaming around the train. Um, add in the fact that we have two kind of troublemaking little kids who have decided to pose as an adult, a single adult. It's the old, uh, I'll get on your shoulders and we'll have a long trench coat trick, which always works. And they sneak onto, they've snuck onto this train because they want to be on this inaugural voyage. And, uh, so of course we have these kids then interacting with this bizarre gorilla like critter. It, 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 since in this episode are never in the same room. It's, it's, it's so strange almost I mean, okay there's a linear story that's be, that's being told but it still feels as if it's a fever dream and or huge chunks of the script were being read upside down. I don't get it.
2: Well you know um, if you look at it you would think oh this oh, we've got a monster on a train that's kind of a familiar idea you know we've yeah. seen that in different places. But anytime kids show up on this show, anytime children are involved in the story, it just mm-hmm. gets so bizarre. I mean, I don't know what in you know what what is going on. But any anytime the children step into an episode, it just gets things go in all kinds of crazy places that that are impossible to, to predict, and sometimes it's somewhat difficult to figure out. What is you know what's happening in some of these episodes, or what what are we supposed to take? Not really so much what's happening is what are we supposed to take away
0: from this?
1: Yeah, th- that's a good question. What are we supposed to take away from this the entire time? Because, I mean, I don't know if you remember the ending, but at the end, one of the kids and the the gorilla creature are are safely launched into orbit. Now think <laughs> about that for a second. <laughs> think about the concept. Think about ah, this is how we'll end this sucker. We'll launch a small child and a, a bizarre gorilla monster <laughs> into orbit around the earth. What in hell? <sighs> I mean, it's, 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 it's a fun 25 minutes because you never know what the hell is going to happen next, but
2: yes, yes. Um, and there, and there are episodes like that, 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 um, just have resolutions that are not what anyone would expect based on any kind of conventional narrative that, i've ever been exposed to but um but yeah it's 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 a really fascinating series the other thing the other thing that interests me about this series however is the fact that um you know we we talked about how there's not really a lot of um there's not really any continuity episode to episode and you can watch them in any order and that's true but at the same time if you do watch them in order at least when i watch them in order um, I, I found, like, sort of percolating in the background, there were these two different ideas and themes that run throughout um, the episodes, and there's, there's one that's more dominant for most of the, of the, of the run of episodes, and then another one that, that comes in a little bit later. And the first one is this idea, and this is uh, mm-hmm. e- expressed overtly in certain episodes, that uh, sort of it, this, this kind of ecological theme. The idea that, you know, people have messed with nature and now nature is going to start messing back. Yeah. And like one of my favorite episodes and the first and the episode where that's really in the foreground the most, I think, is episode four, which is a uh, mammoth flower where this like giant prehistoric blood sucking flower uh, starts uh, growing in the middle of the city, actually in the middle of the building where Yuriko and uh, her, new- her newspaper is located. It kind of has a Bialante kind of uh, vibe to it, which is kind of fun. Yeah,
1: that's exactly the feeling that I had while watching it, which is, oh man, this feels very much like they they decided to tease this story out to Godzilla size, you know, in in yeah. the early nineties.
2: And so, so that's interesting in and of itself, but just that that whole, but the, but and almost all the episodes or many of the episodes, uh, especially the first half of the series. Um, have that this somewhere in them this thread of people somehow messing with uh with nature in some way and you know with the digging the new tunnel that that releases this monster or even in baron spider you've got this guy who was traveling all over the world bringing back all these basically invasive species from and one of them you know killed his daughter and uh, so there's there's that's a whole that's a thread that runs through many of these episodes. Most of the episodes, especially in the first half of the series, and then as we get to the later episodes, it starts to develop this other kind of uh, idea, which is that or, or kind of you know several episodes have this kind of um, theme, I guess, of, of like a, kind of an existential philosophical. Uh, Questioning of sort of what's really important, what's 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 life about, you know, what, what's the purpose of being here?
1: And that's that certainly comes to the fore in some of the later episodes, especially the very last one, which I found sad and touching. But we, we'll yeah. get to that in a minute. the The episode that you're talking about, the the uh, the mammoth flower, if that, I guess that kind of is the first of the uh, kind of nature strikes back ep- episodes in a way, or the stories. Because, and they're and they're very different okay well I, here's the thing I do know a little bit about the production of this show not a whole lot I wish I knew more and I don't know if there are any 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 juicy extras on the the blu-ray set although I assume there probably is but originally this show the way we have ultra Q is not the not the way that it was originally envisioned it was going to be a show they were going to call uh, unbalance which really was going to kind of be a good deal more like the you know story Combination of Twilight Zone and The Outer Limits, um, more so than this show became. Although, as we've said, there are episodes that kind of really feel that way. Uh, but this this episode, this Mammoth Flower episode, um, the 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 Doctor character, Doctor uh, is it ich- Ichi- Ichi- Ichinotani, who who's the one who uh, uh, who plays a major plays a major role in the story. Um, this the script for this. Uh, well, it was originally developed as uh, a script for unbalanced when that was the way they were going to go with the, the production and that that, that uh, doctor character was was going to serve in the entire series as a kind of rod Serling host at the beginning of each episode. Now of course that got scrapped in favor of the, the what I consider to be the really cool voiceover yes that they get, that they have in, in so many episodes, if not all of them, which feels a whole lot like, the control voice from The Outer Limits, which is fantastic. Um, however, since this uh, episode kind of grew out of a script written for Unbalanced, uh, they have that character in it, and it, it really does introduce several concepts that, that they then later used in uh, a lot of other fi- a lot of other films and ideas that grew out of this stuff later on. But the uh, the idea of having a host, you know, obvi- obviously they kind of they kind of built it in, and instead of doing the Rod Serling thing, they kind of defaulted to the Outer Limits thing, which um, I think works brilliantly in this show because so- sometimes it-, 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 it serves well to have someone kind of setting your mind in a certain direction at the beginning, and then maybe kind of. Putting a little button on it right at the end, and I think they use that voiceover very effectively throughout the series.
2: Yeah, and again, that's 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 true for many episodes. There are some episodes that don't have that particular feature, or where it's just not as not as prominent. Uh, but but yeah, yeah, for when when it's used, it's used well. And, and another thing, uh, two other things I just want to before I forget to mention them that I want to get out there is another real treat for me of this series is that they create Individual, unique title sequences for every episode. Uh, yes. So you have, and they're not all like just clips from the episode. It's different things. There's new footage, footage created specifically for the introductions, and they, they have different styles, uh, different different devices and things that they that they use, and that's really effective at kind of setting up the the vibe of the episode in a way that, as opposed to just having one standard introduction that's used for everything. Uh, mm-hmm. Kind of gets you in that mindset, um, and the other thing that I think is really effective with the series is the music, the the score, the th- the theme song, and the score for this is this kind of you know groovy, I don't know what you call it, uh, kind of uh,
1: jazzy,
2: j- jazzy fusiony <laughs> kind of thing that plays really well, you know, for especially for for 1966, 67, uh, you know, really captures that that moment and. It makes it seem kind of you know, it's like, you know, an Anuka Fubi you know march wouldn't really suit uh, this. So it does it, it, as well as that kind of music does.
1: Well, it sets a tone. I, I absolutely love the music, and it is one of the standout elements of the show because it's one of those things where, um, and the the theme music, of course. St- it stands out in a way that, of course, theme music should, because it's it's kind of unforgettable. And then once you, once you, you know, you watch a number of episodes, it's kind of always there in your head, no matter what, as you're watching each episode. But I think that um, the music used in the body of the show, I don't know if it was music that was composed specifically for the show or not, or if it was music that was being you know that was being pulled from other sources and being used for other things as well. But the effectiveness of it, yeah, you're right. There's never. Any of those giant, uh, you know, Godzilla marches. Even when we're dealing with uh, the, you know, the giant monsters traipsing through cities and destroying everything, we don't even get we we, we get stabs of that type of sound occasionally. But it's definitely never a major theme throughout uh, the score for each episode. And the uh, I, I even noticed that they occasionally will add an element to the the theme song. Uh, on a couple of a couple of uh, episodes to kind of offset the sound of it just a little bit, they'll like add um, an extra bit of percussion over the top of some of it sometimes. Uh, not not often from what my memory from what my memory is because I went looking to like grab some of the audio and i noticed oh the audio on at the beginning of this episode the the theme music at the beginning of this episode is slightly different because they've added a, a strange bit of percussion here or they've not added it there or they've taken something out it's, it's it's kind of fascinating that they spent that much time in detail even on something that would have been just fine if they just used the exact same theme you know each episode but it's almost as if they were spending a lot of time making sure that they altered the atmosphere, even down to the setup. Uh, and I, I, something else I like about this show a lot is that uh, the, the 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 pre-credit sequence in each episode um, it, it almost always, not quite each time out, not not every, not all 28 episodes is this true, but it very much it's kind of a, a warning. This is going to be the tone of the show. <laughs> this is the, 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 lead in before you get to the, to the opening credits where we're kind of trying to tell you, here's the tone of this episode. So, you know, strap in whether you're ready for this or not. If you're not ready for the wackiness of what we're presenting, you might want to step away.
2: Right. Yeah. You get, you get a little, uh, you get a pre-credit uh, uh, kind of cold open sort of thing. And then, the theme song, and then this unique title sequence, and then we get into the body of the episode itself. And and typically, because we only have 25 minutes here, the the pre credit sequence is not just some throwaway. It actually is the setup for the rest of the story, typically, mm-hmm. uh, which is uh, you know which is very effective too. I mean, there's there's this thing it operates with the you know with the the pedal to the metal all the time. Uh-huh.
1: or nature-strikes-back kind of ideas, uh, I found The Terror of Sweet Honey to be a, tr- a truly bizarre episode because from the title, I thought, okay, so probably we're going to have some tainted honey that turns people into monsters, right? Uh, no, what we get is a giant mole. Uh, <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's, it's, well, uh, it ter- well, the honey does, in fact... Uh turn something into a monster, but it's not like a big bee monster or something. It's this, this, mole that eats the stuff. And then and again, you've got people trying to, to turn, you know, a natural thing into something, uh, you know, to their own use to, to make it into something with additional powers or whatever. And things go haywire. I mean, this, this happens over and over again on the, in the, in, in this series.
1: Well, and also the, the terror of sweet honey episode has, has such an odd, an odd turn near the end where, they they actively use the military to uh, blow up uh, an area of, of 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 a mountain to start some volcanic activity to uh, to stop what's going on and there's a part of me going I don't think that's wise <laughs> I, mean, I, I really don't think that you want to I mean do do not do not most Japanese have a have a, a trauma involving you know you know, lava and live volcanoes. I mean, they're pretty close to the bone there. Right. Or is it just that they're so used to the threat that they don't care? I don't know.
2: <laughs> yeah. I, I wouldn't want to be living on the other side of the volcano.
1: <laughs> no, no. It is like, I mean, I, there, there's a part of me just, you know, for no good reason whatsoever who's, who's waving his arms in the air and going, are we alerting everybody that we're about to bomb a volcano? I mean,
2: you know, well, and while we're talking about it, we probably should devote at least a little bit of time, although although we both had the experience of being more impressed by the the episodes that were not uh, that were not necessarily so much about the monsters. Yeah, um, we should point out that there are a lot of monsters in in this series, and uh, there are a lot of really striking, bizarre-looking creatures on display here, and um, there are also uh, because you know it's, it's super Aya productions and and uh, they they were able to reuse some of the monster suits and things from the Godzilla movies and other toho kaiju films and yeah. so it is kind of nice to look and see oh hey there's the Godzilla uh, costume with a different head on it or there's, you know, the monster from, uh, you know, uh, Gorath or, you know, uh, whatever. It's, it kind of turns up in these different episodes. So if you are just purely looking for monsters, well, they, they, they use you will everything. also be pleased with this series, I believe.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, apparently they ended up using, I mean, they they, they ended up kind of uh, taking and altering the King Kong suit. Right, Uh, from King Kong versus Godzilla. They did something with the, the giant octopus from Frankenstein, uh, versus Baragon. And then, um, geez, I think they did something. I think they did something with Baragon as well. Yeah, they did. I mean, the, the the reuse of props, of course, pretty smart, but, uh, I can see why to a degree, I mean, you kind of have to be, you have to be frugal with these things because man, you know, pumping out 28 episodes of a show, and that's something else that I think the, this this show shows. We we're, we've gone back to this type of production in the twenty first century, which is that the entire run of the show was produced before any of it was broadcast. So what you have is uh, once they decided on a vision of the show, once they decided you know what what they were going to do, they you know they locked into you know they locked everything into place, produced twenty eight scripts, and then went in and, and made them. And so what you have are you know twenty eight, twenty five minute long. Episodes that are essentially standalone mini films, and uh, anytime that you've got uh, one where you've got to have a giant monster, you know you've got uh, destruction, you've got to have all of the special effects involved in in creating the illusion of this thing, and I have to say that although I'm, I'm I'm willing to bet money that the black and white production that they chose to, to go with saved them a lot of time and trouble on some of the special effects, especially some of the cool matting that they do to composite certain shots together. Uh, you know, the, you, you can, you know, they use force perspective in a number of shots as well, but the, some of the, some of the times where there, there, there are uh, scenes in some episodes where it's clear if you, you know, if you're an adult watching it, that they're compositing three different elements together in a single shot for a 1966 television show
2: yeah apparently yeah from what i read this this was the most expensive television television series ever produced in japan up to that point
1: uh i'm not shocked yeah yeah.
2: so they but i'm sure doing it in black and white did save them some money and 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 certainly the visual effects are pretty are, are very are usually very impressive especially the non you know suit monster effects like just like in the, the the other kind of ancillary effects of you know the things of buildings crumbling and miniatures and things of that nature are are pretty convincing for that for that period and then the suit monsters you know some of those are just so wacky it's hard to you know uh, it, it's hard to think of them as being necessarily realistic or whatever but they're certainly striking looking I don't think they were mm-hmm. supposed to be realistic looking but but the but the other effects uh, are, are pretty pretty smooth and well executed uh, one thing I wanted to say on the subject of the, of the reusing the monster suits was that like in some instances like you talk, you talked about the, the the giant octopus from King Kong versus Godzilla or that I had mentioned uh, the kind of giant um, walrus thing from gorath um, yeah. maguma I guess its name is that some of these some of these things um, one of the nice things about ultra Q is that some of these monsters are only on screen for a very brief mo- amount of time in the in the film, so you get a much better look at them and see what they you know can do more in this series than you ever got in the movies, and that's kind of nice too if you're a big fan of the of the movies to see some of those uh, creatures and and other things get uh, get a little bit more run. And if you ever wanted to see what a what a uh, Japanese female creature from the black lagoon might look like. You can always uh, check out primordial amphibian ragon, which turns up in one of the <laughs> Yes.
1: Wait, that, okay, here's the here's the thing I kept I kept wondering while watching that episode. They kept referring to the creature as as, as things are going on and uh, the creature is for some quote-unquote unknown reason wandering around the island and and causing havoc. It's like, okay, look, this is a a, hu- a human-sized bipedal creature. You have, at the beginning of this story, take it, taken hold of something that could be, a, let me guess, egg. And I'm sorry, one look at this thing, and it has breasts. <laughs> why are we still calling it him and he? And why have we not figured out that this is a mother wanting its child back? It's, it's like they literally can't dope this out until the egg hatches and the little version of the monster pops out of it. You're like, oh, oh, I guess it's looking for, I guess he, and they still say, he's looking for his baby. And it's like, look at the breasts. They built breasts into this suit. Come on. Just <laughs> like, I, I, I'm assuming they're trying, I, I don't know if that's that was a, uh, you know, kids are watching this show kind of thing. We we may have to you know we 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 can drag this out longer because the kids won't figure it out or but as you know as any adult is going okay that that monster has breasts I'm pretty sure it's female
2: maybe that was a subtitle mistranslation I mean I'd have i have to go back and look at the uh, oh okay I'd have to go back and look at that episode again it's not one of the ones i, re- I revisited but uh, I'd be and now that you've said that I'm gonna go back and look at it and see if maybe uh, in my version, it still says he, or maybe at some point it changes to she. I, I'm not sure. I, I I wasn't watching it quite that closely.
1: I mean, yeah, I, but they 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 do seem it would seem to fit because they do seem utterly but utterly shocked when they when it turns out. Oh, I bet it was the I bet it was a woman. It's like oh yeah, no kidding. It's female, dude. It is a female.
2: Well, one of the huh. interesting, interesting things about that episode is is that the sort of big reveal at the end there is is similar to the the same thing with uh, the Devil in the Dark with the Horta episode on Star Trek on the original Star exactly, Trek, exactly,
1: exactly, which came
2: was about the same period, like maybe a year later, I think, because I think that's a I think that was a season two episode of Star uh,
1: Trek.
2: Um, Devil
1: in the Dark, I think, was actually season one.
2: Was it season one? Then it would have yeah, been almost. Yeah. Uh, almost, uh, you know, at the same time as this episode, uh, you know? So, it, but, but yeah, there, there are a lot of, um, a lot of things kind of cross over like that too. I, like mentioned the similarities with some episodes, uh, kind of reminded me of the twilight zone, some outer limits. And then there were even a couple that had kind of like that, that very much put me in mind of the, of the, of that Star Trek episode, which is one of my favorites. So,
1: yeah, it's, it's, it's a great episode. It's the, uh and, and I think that the thing is, the, the beauty of this is that while I'm about to, to, to talk about a particular episode of Ultra Q here that I think um, <laughs> reminded, me, reminded me directly of something that came decades later, uh, I think that it's also important to point out that a lot of these ideas that Ultra Q and all these other shows have played with or, and you know continue to play with are ideas that were popping up in pulp magazines and science fiction novels for years and years and years before 1960s, you know, before 1966. Oh sure, yeah. Um, th- these kind of stories popped up all the time. I mean, there's a, a similar, um, you know, creatures coming creatures coming to uh, find their children storyline in an episode of The Outer Limits. For God's sake, so it's not as if this is some kind of uh, this is not the genesis point for this kind of this kind of story told in a science fiction setting. Um, you know, it would be. It'd be interesting, but I think it would be almost impossible to like, you know, trace it back through, you know, uh, you know, the published science fiction all the way into the 1920s to discover if you can figure out where where that story was first uh, generated and who the genius was who thought it would be a good idea to set it in a science fiction tale. But one of the episodes that I found completely fascinating and did not know that this was that this was going to be true just from the title alone was the one, the episode called the one eighth project.
2: Yeah. That's another one of my favorites. I love that episode.
1: It's absolutely fascinating. And, um, although there's a, there's a part of me that, that, that wants to go, people were about to spoil this episode. I mean, there comes a point in the episode when you either think that they've completely lost their minds or this is certainly a dream episode. You know, someone's having some kind of fever dream of some sort because there are times within a lot of episodes of this show where you start to question the narrative logic of anything that's happening. Um, but in the 1 project, there come several points where you're going, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. How did we get here? Why, why didn't they say something? How did we get to this point? I, I don't they, they they she why didn't she say anything when they put her in this machine wait a minute what's happening? yeah so there? So,
2: so so what's the setup for this episode is that Eureka uh, is investigating uh, looking into this thing called the one 8th project And the, the, the show opens with there's she's being jostled around on the the, the subway and they get scenes of the super ultra crowded you know uh, Tokyo and and so she so then then we cut after the after the uh, the pre credit sequence to her asking about what this one-eighth project is about and it's a, a project where they're apparently shrinking people to one-eighth of their normal size uh, and trying to like start this whole other human civilization with smaller people which take up fewer room need fewer resources etc cetera, etc cetera, which is another idea that's been around a long time and would come around again many more times after this but uh, she winds up getting sort of accidentally shrunken against her will and there's apparently no way to turn back and things just get more bizarre from there and and it has this sort of you know nightmare quality of of uh you're put in this situation where uh you're more pretty powerless or, or 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 at least under great threat and then yeah set adrift and through all these weird scenarios i mean she goes floating down a river in a box and then floats away on a on a balloon and and uh <laughs> yes and, she out,
1: and there are out, a couple of nuns know, involved at one it, point
2: out in, and she goes out into the you know the, the sort of outside world with full size people as a tiny person and it's uh you know and there's a very good you know there's very good effects with um you know, with the, the giant-sized props and things, and then and then and there's a really nice twist uh, toward the end where June and uh, Ippi come. Uh, I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, their names incorrectly, but Jun and Ippe or whatever their names are uh, come looking for her, and they go into the, the tiny one-eighth world, and they are like these giant kaiju walking around the city, towering over buildings and and mm-hmm. and things. And that's a nice twist. And and yeah, it, ultimately the episode has kind of a cop-out ending but it's the only episode that has that kind of an ending it wasn't something and well, it, it
1: also it's the only way that that the episode could make any sense because like i say there are three or four different points in the story as we watch her go through you know once she once she's shrunk well even before she's shrunk the immediate question is wait a minute wait a minute she's conscious when they put her in this machine why 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 is she letting them do this to her it's very evident that something is going to happen to her why is she allowing this to occur and um There there are a number of things like that as the episode goes along where you're just like, wait, 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 wait. And, of course, my favorite being, how did the balloons make the little box float in the air? You know, it's just like, okay, we're definitely in the realm of of WTF here to a point that's beyond absurd.
2: Yeah, but so many episodes in this series take you to to WTF land that I wasn't – they didn't necessarily mean that it had to have that kind of ending. I mean, I think they could have written a different ending to that episode, but – it was, uh, but in despite however it ends, it's a really fascinating episode. It works really well. It's it's unnerving in parts. Really well executed, clever. And it's definitely one of my favorite episodes of the series.
1: Well, I love the fact that they use um, her perceived reactions of what her two best friends, the two pilot friends, one of which, I mean. With, with June, I think that, I mean, or June or J-U-N, I'm not sure exactly how I'm supposed to pronounce this fellow's uh, character's name. Uh, but it's very clear as the, as the series progresses that she, you know, she is very fond of him and may actually have some romantic feelings toward him. And so when she, um, when she discerns that they don't really seem to, after she's gone for about a week, they really kind of just don't even bother looking for her anymore. And this is of course all from her perspective and it really starts. It, it really depresses her. It becomes this thing where she realizes that maybe I really didn't matter to these people. Maybe it didn't matter to them that I was part of their life. And it becomes this bizarre existential thing where she's just willing to just let her life end, or just go back and be in the, you know be and do be and do the sad thing. You know, it's just it's it's very. Um, it
2: she sure, She becomes resigned to just going back into the one eighth world and staying there for the rest of her life. Yeah,
1: and, and and all she wanted to do up till then is just escape and get back to normal size, and it's 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 very touching, and it's also very much a a, 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 a look into some of the, the aspects of this show that I like the most, which is um, where you you know you have all this crazy shit going on. I mean, it's there's some nutsoid crap in almost every episode, and every now and then an episode uses that nutsoid stuff to comment on something real on something you know internal to the characters and it becomes it's those episodes I find most affecting because they really do feel like they're talking about something that uh, although the kids will enjoy the special effects it's the adults who might stumble across this show that would really get what they're aiming for which is you know this is just a demonstration a kind of ridiculous oversized or undersized demonstration of what these uh, what, what, what people think and how they how they react to things, and it doesn't have to be something ridiculous. But this ridiculous thing allows us to hold up a mirror and kind of examine it more closely, and it's it's really effective stuff. And I, I think that's one of the reasons why I like that episode so much is that it is, uh, while while being you know completely completely crazy, it's a fever dream. Uh, it, it it allows them to examine something really. Really wonderful about human nature and our our internal fears, the internalized uh, lack of of, uh, of self worth, the that that sometimes creeps into our relationships between uh, people without us even thinking about it. Is do you know you that that creeping fear that I really don't matter to a large degree. It's 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 imp- it's impressive.
2: Well, yeah, th- it's an that's it's an also an interesting episode uh, because I mean it's episode seventeen. So it's you know a little bit past the halfway point of the series, and it's it's sort of like the 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 more environmental, ecological-minded uh, stuff that runs through al- almost all the episodes up to that point, in one way or another, in the background or in the foreground, is still present in that episode because it's talking about you know over- overpopulation and. You know, the, you know, having to come up with solutions because you know, there aren't enough resources for people mm-hmm. and all that sort of thing. A kind of a soiled green kind of, you know, uh, concern. But then, exactly. but then it, as it progresses, it kind of shifts away from that and then folds into that more, as I was talking about earlier, and you were just talking about the more existential issues of, you know, what is what is my life really worth? You know, who, what, you know, what's really important to me? Who are the people that are really important to me? Um, you know, what's the point of all this, uh, it, 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 that stuff really comes up for her. And then those things seem to come up more often in the remaining episodes for the rest of the year, uh, of the, for the rest of the season, you get the, one of the final episodes is this, uh, blazing glory where this, there's this boxer that has a, that has a, a dragon, like a, a sort of pet lizard that has... <laughs> it's hard to explain, but gives him his <laughs> motivation and, and ability to fight, and then he wants to give that up, and it it's and because he he loses his mascot and and um and then it's it just goes all kinds of bizarre places, and then and then ultimately the final episode, the one we talked about earlier, the open up episode with with yeah with the interdimensional train. Is really all about that. when you've got this cast of characters, including Eureka uh, and June, who are like fed up with their lives and just want to escape and go somewhere where they don't have deadlines and all these other pressures and things on them. And there's this, and there, meanwhile, there's this this sort of salaryman character who's, you know, henpecked by his wife, and his boss is a jerk, and uh, and uh, he he kind of stumbles into this this uh, interdimensional train that's like this passageway between. Our world and this other dimension, with with a kind of a, that supposedly this this uh, kind of paradise like place, but and, and uh, they have to kind decide. Eureka and, and June are trying to figure out, you know, what is what is going on here because people are disappearing and they're trying to get to the bottom of this. And there's like a there's a science fiction writer who's involved in this, who's sort of the the person who has. Brought the the train about, <laughs> or picking people up as,
1: or, dis, or discovered it. It's almost as if he yeah. he discovered it, and has just been writing novels about this this possibility of these other dimensions.
2: Yeah, you know? and, and so you know, and the, and the, but the 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 real interesting to me to me about that episode is is the stuff with the the sort of salaryman character who who stumbles yes. into the train and then realizes he's going to have to leave his wife and his child before, and he screams and hollers to get off the train, and he goes back to his life, and then. He's not back in his life very long until he suddenly decides he wants to get back on the train again.
1: Well, I mean, it's it's then that we are introduced. It's only at the point where he, he has escaped from the train that we're introduced to his wife and his right. and his daughter. Now, in, in the visions that he had of his daughter when he was still on the train, uh, when he was struggling desperately to try to get off of it to get back to his family, uh, he pictured it's interesting. He pictured his daughter as younger than she currently is. So when that when so when he gets back to uh, our regular reality, and he's confronted with his wife, who's who's very upset with him because you know she she uh, considers him to have been uh, drunk all night, and she had to come and pick him up from you know the the professor once again. The professor appears uh, at his house, which is where they uh, they dropped him off at, trying to figure out what was wrong with him and his daughter. Although she seems more sympathetic toward him, toward her father than her mother, it's clear that he just has a lot of reasons to want to escape this. Because I mean, he's he's kind of trapped in this family situation that does not make him happy, and to the point where he just jumps out and and runs to work, and that's where we are introduced to his to his boss, who you know, although has good reason to be upset with him, he shows up an hour before the end of the day. It's clear that that ending is so haunting, man. The ending of that episode. What a, what a way to end a series let's put it this way with uh, a character who's only been introduced in this episode desperately trying to get back onto a, a train that will take him to another world completely yeah
2: it's it's a really it is a really haunting beautiful episode and a great way to end the series and one of my and again one of my favorite episodes uh, uh, of the of the 28 and it, and it's and it's interesting too to, to take that to, to sit back you know, if you do watch the series in order to think about where we start with you know defeat Gomas and this very typical Kaiju thing and then it goes in all these different t- twists and turns and winds up here and it's like wow you know <laughs> what a long strange trip it's been mr. Garcia and it's but it's it's really fascinating to, to think about winding up in that place from where we start and in, in, in terms of the nature I mean there's no there are no monsters in the episode. Uh, it, the the concerns of the episode are 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 different, but you've gotten but you get there through the, you, these other episodes along the way, so it doesn't seem like you know needle scratching record or something. It, it's uh, somehow it all sort of flows to this kind of inevitable place where you're worried about the world and you're worried about your pers- your you know your place in it, and yeah. and it just yeah. contains all this sort of deep anxiety. Um, like, like, like a reflection on it that you I I would never have anticipated being part of all of of this show that I just thought of as being like the the precursor to Ultraman, you know, and it's really so many, so much more than that.
1: It it really is. It's way it's way more than than what grew out of it, which. I mean, I, I don't want that to be read as a knock on the Ultraman series that came you know, right after this. I, I really don't. Uh, I mean, I love but Ultraman. A, but, you know. Yeah, I, I love those shows as well. But it becomes this thing where you're you're watching this show and you realize, you know, even though you can feel the pull and the put the the pull back and forth between um, having monster episodes so that the you know so that the kids are entertained. And the, the, the kind of it, there's a yin yang to it where it feels as if it's sometimes off balance, where there's this there's this need to have the, the giant monster episodes for the obvious reasons and the desire for the people creating this thing to tell more adult tales, to be talking about things that are more important than uh, even the things that can be talked about. Uh, symbolically, with you know, giant monsters doing specific things. this is this is uh, there's a there's a tug back and forth, it seems uh, about what the show could or or maybe would have been without the desire to play to the giant monster crowd. And um, I don't know if it would I don't I don't know if uh, going completely in one direction or the other would have made it a better series. I really don't. Uh, I'm just very pleased with what we ended up with because although there's a part of me that would have loved to have seen a kind of Outer Limits Twilight Zone crossover done at this period of time with the amount of attention to detail that's being put into this series, I, I do like the monster episodes as well. You know, I do like seeing giant critters stomping on buildings and and uh, humans running around trying to figure out how to you know keep their hair from catching on fire and figuring out what to do but the the back and forth nature of this series um, it, it's never it never feels like whiplash you know it never feels like you're being jerked around from one tone to another uh, although sometimes like I say with even within episodes the tone will markedly shift back and forth depending on which character is being concentrated on in any, in any particular scene I mean, like I say, I mean, there are episodes that are just completely ridiculous where you've got a man in a modified gorilla suit with giant weird lips, you know, traipsing around a, a bullet train while two kids are walking around pretending they're an adult in a trench coat. It's
2: Well, another nuts. really nutty episode hey. uh, uh, that uh, we skipped over, I realized I wanted to talk about it a little bit, it was, it was uh, um, Challenge from the Year 2020, which... Uh, does not involve, in fact, a world a worldwide pandemic, but uh, yes. uh, rather is about this. It's kind. Of, it's about this sort of time traveling menace from the future. That uh, I mean, it's it, it's nominally a science fiction story that plays more like a sort of sort of horror or urban fantasy kind of thing. And you have these people that step into this mysterious goo and then they yeah. vanish, and uh, and then it comes. And then it involves this weird alien from the future who, at the end, becomes giant. And he looks like, and and this creature, (laughs) definitely the weirdest creature on the show, in my opinion. This thing looks like a a giant walking phallus and it spurts liquid out of its head.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I know. It's so (laughs) odd. I kept wondering if they realized what. They, I mean, they had to realize what that design was going to immediately key into the mind of any human being, who's ever seen a penis. For God's but, sake,
2: you know. So it, this another just really, and there. So there, there is a giant monster involved. Not quite, maybe what you would expect, but there you go.
1: But I would say that the more interesting aspect of the of this sh- of the episode is the whole you know strange goose substance that makes people disappear because all is well and good in a show like this uh, you know while you're going, okay okay so we're seeing people you know disappear so they're pro- you know they could be dead or whatever but then it happens to one of our main characters
2: Oh right yeah John uh, winds up getting zapped oh and the other thing I forgot to mention is, is the finale of this thing takes place at like a car- on like a carnival Midway so it has this yeah. kind of creepy you know uh, kind of atmosphere to it anyway. Um, and the scene where ultimately John and the other people return is also bizarre, because they, they wind up in this oh, like yeah. teacup ride spinning around. It's just weird
1: at the at the amusement yeah, park. It's yeah. just
2: uh, just a really it's a very enjoyable, entertaining episode, and it's just so so bizarre.
1: Well, it's it's oddly spooky. Mm-hmm. There 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 are scenes that are really creepy. Uh, and then the, the, the thing where the, uh, the alien creature has kind of transformed into, the, into Jun, the, the, the main character who got zapped by yep. the goo, and kind of look, and, and looks like him. And then there, there's that overlay where you can see both right. uh, the, the human character and the monster at the same time. It's, um, th- there's a lot of really effective things in it. And it all feels, it, it, unlike say the one eighth project, where it all turns out to have just been an imagined fever dream. This one is played out um, at, with it all happening, and and it feels and it feels like they thought that stuff through very effectively to the point where that I found it a really haunting image that they chose for the people to after the monsters defeated to reappear in that uh, teacup ride because the we we get that long off shot the, that. Uh, that very wide shot of the uh, the teacup ride, and it's in motion, it's moving, mm-hmm. and each w- each one of the people who returns is in one of those little teacups, and so they're, they're ro- you know there's it's that double rotation, so it's the it's this the giant rotation of the entire affair, and then each individual teacup is rotating as well with each person inside it, and it really felt as if the that that movement mirrored the the effect that it was having on the characters, and also the kind of uh, I don't know. Alice in Wonderland, Mad Hatter es- yes. aspect of that whole final sequence in the first place.
2: Yeah, and, and, and that shot, you, you're right about that shot. And the, and the series is full of things like that, where it's like, somebody took some care and imagination into setting up how mm-hmm. this thing was going to look. I mean, it's not just like, you know, set up a couple of cameras and and, and get this on film, you know, however we can. There's there's clear thought put into Many. I mean, even though they're only 25 minutes long and they're in black and white and et cetera and et cetera, it does have a kind of cinematic quality to it. Just in terms of the amount of thought that goes into particular shots and the way they're going to present different passages. You know, it's 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 not just slapped together at all. There's there's a lot of care went into this thing.
1: It's it's incredibly effective stuff, and the the level of attention to detail throughout in every episode. Uh, it never feels slapdash. It never feels as if they were just trying to get this stuff in the can. It feels as if, and maybe this is true. I don't know. I, like I said, I don't know a lot about the, the the strains of the production, but it feels as if they honestly had the time to do things the way they wanted to. Um, that may not be true. Maybe they were just as rushed as I as I I know some some productions get at times. But regardless, I think that getting this show. To to be at such a a high quality level is is an incredible accomplishment. I mean, like I say, these are these are little mini movies, uh, and to have produced 28 of them, and for you know, as I may like more, I may like some more than others. That's just that's going to be true no matter what you do. This is a this is a truly strange. I mean, let's call it what it is. This is a supernatural slash science fiction anthology series. There are reoccurring characters from episode to episode, but it's really just an anthology series. And to produce these, I mean, e- that means each script has to kind of build its little world from the ground up. Yep. Uh, and then, you know, have you know have all its conflicts, tell its story, and wrap everything up in 25 minutes. It's really impressive.
2: Yeah, I, I believe, um, if I, I, and I don't know, as I said, one of the things that I am in, I personally enjoyed most about the series and where I am with it right now is that this this was a discovery for me. I'm sure there are people out there listening to this who are like, how do these guys not know Ultra Q? But, you know, I mean, I've seen tons and tons of movie, science fiction, horror movies, TV shows, things of that nature. So there's not a whole lot that I haven't, you know, encountered on uh, previously that, that I think is really, you know essential especially from this time period from the 60s uh, uh, but, you know, we didn't do TV uh, in the 60s book we only did film so this so wasn't something I would have encountered in that project but it, I, it really uh, it's new it's fresh and exciting to me um, so but I don't know it that well I don't know I haven't dug into it that deeply. Uh, I've never even had the opportunity to review the, the discs so um, but based on what I do know uh, and what I have read, I suspect that they had more time uh, to put into this series than su- than went into the subsequent series because apparently production on, on the show started in 1964, and it obviously debuted in 66. So they must have had some time and care to put into this show, which of course turned out to be an enormous hit and led to them making Ultraman, and Ultraman was an even bigger hit and led to you know a whole franchise – but,, uh, um, yeah, but i I would be willing to bet that probably more more time, they had more time uh, to put into these episodes and maybe more money than they had to go in than they had to put into later ultraman episodes uh, or 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 many other episodes of other series from this in This time period—that's
1: that's a possibility. I would I would love to uh, I would love to find that out. And as I explore the uh, the recently released Blu-rays of the uh, the Ultraman stuff, I'm hoping that some of the extras on there kind of give some information about that.
2: Um, yeah, unfortunately, there aren't really many. There aren't really any extras. Oh, but uh, there are okay. no commentaries or documentaries or things of that nature. Uh, unfortunately It's I wish there were. And 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 if uh, you want to reissue them with any of that stuff. Uh, anybody at Mill Creek, I'm your Huckleberry. Call me, I'll help. But uh, <laughs> but the, but another thing I, I stumbled across uh, another piece of information I d- I discovered uh, getting ready for this for this uh, interview actually was I did not realize that there was a remake of this series, Ultra Q Dark Fantasy, which yeah I uh,
1: only read a little bit about that I, I yeah.
2: so it's 26 that was produced in uh or broadcast anyway in in 2004 ran 26 episodes 26 24 minute black and white episodes um and apparently it's like in this series the original series is is a television show so Mm -hmm. it's like you know which is kind of an interesting twist and i would i now uh i'm on a mission to try to track down and, and see this show i don't know where it's we're, I'm hoping that if the, as, the, as, as uh, Milk Creek continues to go through season by season, all these different Ultra series, we'll eventually get to that one. I think it was the 17th, so we have a ways to go yet. Um, or maybe it'll turn up somewhere else. Uh, I know that the that Ultra Q, by the way, if you don't want to spring for the, the Blu-ray set, it is available, I guess, on Tubi and some other uh, streaming places. So uh, Yeah, I
1: think uh, it even pops up on the... Um it pops up on the Shout Factory uh, streaming thing. There, there, there's a streaming deal between Mill Creek and Shout Factory, so that a lot of the uh, Tokusatsu series uh, can be seen streaming off of the uh, Shout Factory uh, streaming service. Yeah,
2: so I'm now going to now I'm now going to uh, to to do my uh, due diligence and see if I can figure out where it might be possible to see Ultra Q Dark Fantasy. But
1: yeah, I'd like to see that as well. Well, I mean. It should also be noted that Tsuburaya uh, Productions did finally get a chance to kind of do the uh, the show the way they originally envisioned it to a degree. Because originally the show was not going to be called Ultra Q. It was going to be called uh, Unbalance. Right. And so in nineteen uh, early 1970s, they produced uh, a 13-episode horror anthology series called... Unbalance or horror theater unbalance, depending on what you know how you are able to track it down. And I hate to say this, I have not been able to, I found one episode that's subtitled, but I haven't been able to watch it yet, only one. But, um, and I think that the reason that. That one may be uh, findable with uh, what I presume to be uh, fan subs, is because it was shot by Sheijun uh, Suzuki, the uh, the filmmaker who uh, you might yeah. know from uh, "Branded to Kill" and a number of other fantastic films. Yep. yep. Um, the uh, but I would love. I mean, I there there was a, a DVD release of this thirteen episode series in Japan uh, back like 12, 13 years ago but uh, I don't know of any other release of it ever. And I would love to get a look at it because it just sounds absolutely fascinating. It's like, okay, only 13 episodes, you know, it's an anthology series that I guess, you know, grew out of their desire from a decade before to do the twilight zone, outer limits, you know, cross pollination thing. And I'm just super curious about it.
2: Yeah. I'm really hoping, uh, well, number one, I'm really pleased that, that, you know, Mill Creek, uh, is, is getting these things out in the United States in these, you know, uh, season by season series by series sets. I mean, it's a real, uh, godsend to those of us who have, uh, you know, been curious about these shows, but it's been hard to track them down or they, or when you can find them, they're not in, you know, great quality or they don't have subtitles or whatever. Uh, so, I don't know how many they've contracted for, or any you know, licensed out, or whatever. But hopefully, if they're able to to uh, to continue, that maybe we'll get to some of those, some of these later series and and more and more material out because it's uh, what we've gotten so far has really been fascinating. especially Ultra Q. I mean, of all the ones out so far, the one, of course, I knew Ultraman. You know very well from i've seen that series a million times from when i was when i was a kid and and i still of course that that's always going to have a special place in my heart but but ultra q like you said earlier it's just kind of in its own category it's a whole different deal than any of the later series
1: well listen what i thought you were going to bring up a moment ago was the the the, the series not just the, uh, the one la- labeled dark fantasy but a slightly a slightly newer series um, from 2013, called Neo Ultra Q, which was billed as kind of the second season of the 1966 Ultra Q, premiered in uh, 2013. Apparently, there were uh, there were only 12 episodes, but I'm curious about that as well. So it's like if you know, essentially there there have been bizarrely kind of sequel series to Ultra Q, but you know, decades later, and I don't know that we have a way. To get our hands on any of them, I don't know. Um, maybe Neo Ultra Q has been has been released or is planned to be released. I I can't wait to see the stuff. To be honest.
2: Well, what I, what I have on that is just that it, uh, they announced it was going to run in the United States with English subtitles in twenty seventeen, hmm. um, and apparently it was available on Amazon Prime for a while. But I'm not sure if it's still available there or not. Oh, So, I don't know. We're going to have to do some... We probably should have put in a little bit more research up front.
1: I'm sorry I I concentrated on the original series for this, sir. That's just where my brain was. But, yeah, you're right. I do want to see these sequel series regardless of... uh, I mean, basically it looks like we have three series that came after this that I really want to dig into. The the, the 1970s series, Unbalanced, which I think is going to be very difficult to see. And the other two, which... Uh, it looks like we have a good shot at them actually being available at least eventually.
2: Yeah. Well, we'll have to just uh, make a point to try to track those down and get together again and talk about those in a future, in a a future bloody pit.
1: I have absolutely no problem with that. Uh, Also, before (laughs) we, before we get away from this, uh, I would just like to say that throughout watching these 28 episodes of, of Ultra Q, um, uh, some, some of this just comes from being an adult watching this stuff. But uh, I have to admit that I kept Seeing not just the obvious ones, but a lot of little things that seem to have been used in later film and television. Uh, there's a specific scene in um, uh, the the Ragoon, uh, the primeval amphibian creature. There's a scene where I, I swear it looked like this guy was being pulled out to pulled out into the water by something underneath him, which looked a whole lot like you know certain specific shots from Jaws. And then of course that episode turns out to be kind of a female variation on the Creature in the Black Lagoon, which is something that came before it. But the influence is downrange. I mean, the One Eighth Project. I mean, it looks like it was turned into an entire film called Downsizing in 2017. For God's right. sake,
2: right? Right.
1: With uh, you know, by Alexander Payne with uh, Matt Damon, and then of course we talked about the uh, the, the the plant creature, and the very the very strong similarities uh, down to the the, char- the the professor's daughter character. Uh, that looks like it's something, you know, a straight line down to Godzilla versus Biollante in the '90s, and there were lots and lots of those things throughout the run of the series, where it's just like little bits and pieces here and there, not necessarily entire plot lines like the One-Eighth Project, but the uh, the whole idea that this show may have been way more influential than I had originally assumed going into it. Um, it, it you were talking earlier about how. How exciting it is to stumble across this because you didn't, you know, you didn't see it when you were younger. You didn't see it until just recently, and it feels like a kind of missing piece to uh, the history of the 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 kind of careful building of the visual storytelling and the ideas that get used in visual storytelling, both in film and television. It feels like this missing piece that we've just now kind of stumbled across. Where, whereas other people may have uh, known it for so long that it just. It, it not only seems obvious, it seems like something that is kind of in the background for them. But I think for us, we're looking at this with, with fresh eyes and going, holy crap, this is the first time somebody did this, or holy crap, this is the first time this particular spin was put on this idea. Um, it's, it's, it's exciting.
2: Yeah, and from what I, again, going from just what, I, what I've read, uh, apparently um, both uh, Ultraman and Ultra Q were dubbed into English, and offered for syndication I, I guess they were dubbed in Canada and then and then offered for syndication in the United States and Ultraman was picked up but Ultra Q was not because it was in black and white Yeah. and they're just at the time most TV shows had gone to color and there was not interest in a black and white a new black and white series in syndication especially from Japan so you know unfortunately those of us who grew up with Ultraman could have also grown up with this show, but we were, you know, we we couldn't. <laughs> it didn't happen. Um, I I know what you're saying about the about the influence of Ultra Q on, on later things, and and I think that's true to a certain extent. But I also think that the other thing that's going on here is um, that. Uh, and you talked about this earlier with with the with that amphibian monster episode, and the fact that it goes back to other stories that have been around for a long time. And the same thing with the one eighth project, you can go back to things like you know Doctor Cyclops or you know any number any number of other things. This idea of shrink or the Incredible Shrinking Man, of course, yeah,
1: of
2: of miniaturizing people or shrinking people, uh, and. You know that goes would go ahead and th- there were stories before that there were stories ahead of uh, you know after that there were the micro the, the micronauts novels and things and um, but I think what this series really did, what the writers for this series really did was they took a lot of these kind of uh, eternally you know what evergreen kind of uh, tropes and concepts that turn up in all kinds of science fiction and horror, uh, literature and movies and TV shows that were that were floating around uh, you know, a long time before this show and have continued to be employed you know all these years after the show and probably will always be employed by somebody somewhere but just took them and did these really interesting idiosyncratic things with them that enabled them to comment on you know, Things about you know the nature of our world and how we're taking care of it, and the nature of our lives, and 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 and, and all these other things, in really fascinating ways, um, with a lot of skill and style, and uh, just it just created something really impressive out of this uh, stuff that probably not a lot of people took very seriously or expected much
1: from. It's way better than I I would have thought that it was going to be, and in ways that were completely unexpected. the The look of the I understand the you know the fact that it's in black and white probably limited, let's say interest, especially in the the '70s and '80s. I can see that very much so because there's there's you know at that time you know that's when. Uh, once you get into the late 60s and early 70s, that's when almost everybody has a color television, you know, at least in the living room, you know what I mean? And so the idea of broadcasting something uh, in black and white became less and less attractive. But uh, I have to say that the black and white photography is one of the things that I now think is one of its visually most impressive elements, because it, there's so much about it, and the black and white helps with this, but it, it, the, the series feels so very much a part of the 1960s, but at the same time, it always feels kind of timeless in a strange way. It's um it's so specific that it becomes much larger than that. It becomes something that, it, although it's clear from the cars and some of the... and some of the fashion, but not much of it that is taking place at, uh, you know, in the, in the 1960s. It, it really feels like these stories could be transplanted to any decade in the past 60 years and it would still work.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Which is why I w- kind of want to see the other series because my suspicion is that they will hopefully bear out that thesis that you could take these kind of stories mm-hmm. and do them, you know, 30 years later and they'll still work.
1: Yeah, well, fingers crossed, that we get a chance to to, yeah. to see those to see those series for, uh, sometime fairly soon. Um, and,
2: and, and you're right about the black and white. You, you were right. You, you had mentioned before that the black and white uh, cinematography also kind of, I think, helps cover up or make some of the visual effects more effective. Mm-hmm. Um, and it it always looks good. And there are certain episodes, like we, you know, we talked about the bear and spider episode. Where it really adds a lot I mean where it, it really like the, that episode would not be nearly as effective in color. Oh God no. And there are a few other episodes like that where the black and white really uh, enhances it in other, in the other episodes it's it's definitely uh, you know looks good it was fine but there are certain episodes that just really wouldn't
1: work if they were in color. And the Baron and Spider episode is the one that I would point to immediately yeah yeah uh, Mark. Thank you very much for sitting down to talk Ultra Q with me.
2: Absolutely. Glad to do it. Hopefully we can do it again. Or maybe we'll find I, something else to talk about.
1: I, well, that's just what I, I was about to say. You're, you, you, you are you, are a font of interesting ideas and concepts for podcasts, my friend, and I want to thank you for that. Anytime. Well, Mr. Clark, uh, get get back to work on your 1940s horrors book. Uh,
2: okay. Go.
1: Go. go. Get off, get, get out of this chair and go and work, or stay in the same chair. I don't know. Do you work in the same spot that you're recording currently?
2: Actually? Yeah, this is, I'm, I'm once again, broadcasting from my dank basement lair.
1: <laughs> okay. Well you're allowed to go pee, but then you have to come back and work on the book. Okay. I am a harsh taskmaster. Am is. I not from, from a couple of States away?
2: <laughs> That's what Troy says.
1: <laughs> offering you, offering you nothing, offering you nothing but encouragement in the form of good job, man. Well, thanks, Rodney. Thank you, Mark. And uh, we'll have to do this again, and much sooner than we did it last time. I, 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 uh, I apologize for having delayed this as long as I did, but I, I did want to watch all of the episodes. So, you know. Well, it was worth a wait. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. Aren't TV movies
0: fun? You see all these familiar faces, but doing really unfamiliar things. And I think that that's really exciting. And I think that's something important to the history of film in general. Join Amanda. There's a lot going on in that scene that is unspoken between two men. So I'm just telling you, I think
1: there was a little Brokeback Mountain. <laughs> Dad, I think Therese is a little bipolar. Her voice, it goes from this sort of s- sexy, sensuous voice to, okay,
0: Ramsey, get out of here. It's like, oh, God.
2: I love, you know, in like the late 70s, early 80s, the crazier a person got, the bigger their
0: hair got. (laughs) (laughs) As they discuss their favorite made-for-TV movies. Mr. Hazel On the Made for TV Mayhem Show. This man came to see him. He never comes to see him at work. (laughs) What kind of stories could he have to tell him? (laughs) Tales of his postal delivery.
1: It's the From B 2 A podcast season two at frombta.livesend.com and on Apple Podcasts. I take a celebrity who took a while to make it big and compare that pre stardom career to the career of someone who made it big right away and then established more of a cult fandom. This season, I am covering Angelina Jolie. You were the one. You were the only one. And you were amazing. And film director, master of Italian horror, Lamberto Bava.
0: I'm here. It was only a bad dream.
1: There will be cyborgs, demons, ogres, supermodels, giallo, and a smooth-talking Danny Aiello. I see you
2: ordered the turkey sandwich. You like turkey?
1: Yep. Okay, I just want to take the opportunity to once again thank Mark Clark for coming on the show and talking about this amazing television series from the 1960s. And, uh, yes, I have a look. Uh, Your place to stream a lot of Ultraman stuff, including Ultra Q, is definitely the Shout Factory TV uh, website. You can stream, well, not just uh, Ultra Q, but uh, Return of Ultraman, uh, a lot of the Super Sentai uh, Sentai stuff, uh, several Kamen Rider series. Let's see, Ultra 7, Ultraman Leo, Ultraman Orb, Ultraman Geo? Is that right, Gio? There's just a lot of Ultraman, a lot of uh, cool stuff on their uh, uh, Shoutsu channel, uh, which is, of course, their cute name for uh, their streaming service for a lot of this stuff. Very cool. You can see Ultra Q right there for free, just streaming right to your TV if you want to, which is, which is very freaking cool. If we can only get our hands on those sequel series... And, man, I really do want to see unbalance. I want to see unbalance a lot. So uh, thank you for uh, listening to the show. If you have any comments or suggestions, the email address for the show is thebloodypit at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, I guess we will uh, talk to you again next time. Thanks for listening. Talk to you again soon.
0: Let's make like a tree and leaf. well, let's make like a storm and blow. Now let's play like a chicken and fly this coop, let's make it like a rock and roll. Took my baby to a ball, but hadn't been there long at all. She turned to me and then she said, well, let's blow this joint, the music's dead. Well, let's make it like a tree and leave, now let's make it like a storm and blow. Well, let's play it like a chicken and fly this coop, let's make it like a rock and roll. For quite a while, long hair music cramps my style It's the deadest place that I've been in And what's this thing called a violin? Well, let's make it like a tree and leap Well, let's make it like a storm and blow Now let's play it like a chicken and fly this coop Let's make it like a rock and roll That the music was fine, we would have a rockin' time All I've heard since I arrived is the type they played when Gramps was alive Well, let's make it like a tree and leaf Now let's play it like a storm and blow Well, let's play it like a chicken and a fly this coop Let's make it like a rock and roll Let's make it like a tree and leaf. Now let's make it like a storm and blow. Well, let's play it like a chicken and fly this coop. Let's make it like a rock and roll.